Welcome to this special episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling, and we have Nathan Klusmeyer, who is also pastor with me at Water of Life. And with this special Thirsty episode, we are bringing back our guest host, Pastor Jeremy Leitonen. It's good to be back. We have missed you terribly, Jeremy. I'm sure you have. So once a month or so, we want to have Jeremy on as a guest host, uh, as we're going to be talking about different questions that we have asked our eighth graders in catechism class and that I've texted to our Water of Life high school students and college students and that Jeremy has asked of his high school students at Shoreland as well. And the way we're going to do this is uh, we don't have these answers prepared. Jeremy, you don't have any answers prepared, do you? Uh, I, I actually was... I thought I had so many questions that I, I started doing them with my students in class today, just picking them, and that's why they're up on the board there, the categories. And so I, there are some that I have kind of been practicing a little bit. Okay. All right. Well, to be fair... I have gotten absolutely nothing, <laughs> so I'm coming into this completely cold. Yes. And and the reason I did that is, and even myself, where I like to prepare a lot, I didn't look at the questions and prepare answers because this is the way that we as pastors often get questions. It might be before or after church. It might be something that's a text or a message or for Jeremy in the classroom. And we often don't have our Bible with us. We're just kind of going off off the cuff with our answers. And then when it's a really tough question, then we kind of bring it to other pastors and then ask them for their advice. And that's kind of what we're going to do here uh, with this. Is These are going to be questions, again, for our uh, high schoolers and young adults, ones that they have for us. But you know, if you're an adult, I'm sure these are questions that you're going to be dealing with as well. So we'll start off with an easy one. Uh, Nathan, what is your favorite food? That was one of the questions my eighth graders asked. Uh, sandwiches in all their glorious and wonderful variety. Just sandwiches. Oh, I love sandwiches. Yeah, well, go ahead, Jeremy. At the beginning of the school year, they introduced the new faculty, or they introduced the faculty members to the new students by asking, if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? And I went with roasted pumpkin seeds. Really? Yeah. Wow. It is del- oh that's right we're recording in my classroom so you're just hearing announcements that are going to come over the loudspeaker i don't even know if you heard me or if you heard coach hagedorn but uh yes this is my classroom and uh roasted, th- there might be roasted pumpkin seeds so yeah so um i was thinking i wanted something that is not just awful uh but it's also not something that i would get sick of and maybe has even just a little bit of nutritional value. Okay. See, now I was, this is one I was thinking of that I would like rancheros. So what a ranchero is, it's, it's a very simple meal that my wife makes for us. And I told her, you can make this every day and be fine with it. It's just a, a wrap, you know, a, a tortilla shell. And then it's ground beef and some pork and beans. And then, you know, I think there's ketchup, maybe some brown sugar and so forth. We always add cheese and so forth. And then my wife and I have been doing a lot of canning and I've canned pickled peppers just to add a little spice to that. Jeremy, if you want to ask us a question from your students. Well, uh, like like I was saying, I, I have them sort of categorized because I've got about, oh, maybe close to 100 students in my religion classes. And uh, why don't you guys pick a category? Go ahead, uh, I've got, yeah, we've got creation, legitimacy of the Bible, <laughs> marriage, gender, and sexuality, uh, paranormal stuff, it's good and evil spirits. Uh, actually, they didn't know this, but the answer to their question is something related to Christology, uh, the afterlife, letting your light shine, baptism, Facing struggles, that's the biggest category. Differing uh, denominations, and uh, then personal pastor stuff. What's it like to be a pastor? What's your favorite this? What's, you know, how long does it take to write a sermon? All that stuff. Well, I say let's just dive right into the deep end of the pool and go with Christology. Oh, 
Okay, I don't know if anybody picked this one today when we were doing it in class, but uh, let's see here. Uh, oh, well, this is, this is the common one. Um, can God make a rock so heavy that even he cannot lift it? Uh, if he cannot, he is not all-powerful. If he can, he is not all-powerful. Respond to the paradox. And, and there, the reason, there's a reason I put it in this category. Okay. So when I've gotten that question, I just say, I think there's a special place in hell for students that ask questions like that. Uh, no, I don't really say that. Uh, but I do say that's not a, a real question because it's, it's not a, uh, something that could not happen, you know, that God is going to make something that he cannot do. I just am struck by this very much feels like a medieval scholastic question right up there with how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Um, and like a lot of philosophical questions, you can argue it from both ways. But again, it gets down to why would God do something that he can't do? He's all he's all powerful. And then this also gets us into the realm of there's so much about that aspect of God, his omnipotence, his omniscience, that because we don't even have a frame of reference, because we're limited mortal corporeal beings, we can't even get to ask the right question to define it, if that makes sense. So it, my answer is, that's why I put it in this category, it, my answer is yes, God can make a rock too heavy for him to lift because he humbled himself by taking on flesh and so in his human flesh nature, uh, he he was weak. He was a baby. Uh, so there you could point to that baby in the manger and say, uh, yeah, he, he can't lift a rock. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll go with one of the other questions that I had. This is one that Nathan and I had the other day as actually from an adult, from one of our senior citizens. So, Nathan, can people have tattoos? Is that allowed in the Bible? Uh, I would say yes. The prohibition against having tattoos, which is in, I believe it's in Leviticus, um, deals more that seems to be a specific prohibition against tattoos that were cultic in nature. Um, it seems like the Canaanite gods, some of that religion there had to deal with Tattoos were used in a religious way, um, and so for the Israelites to distinguish themselves from the nations around them, they were not to do those kind of cultic rituals. Um, because we are no longer under the Old Testament civil law code, um, it is not wrong for a Christian to get a tattoo, unless you're getting into the realm of Adi Afra, where their conscience would say it's wrong for them to get a tattoo, then I would say, well, then, yes, it's wrong for you. And, of course, also you'd have to go, if you had a member that wanted to get something obscene, um, you would have to say, again, that's, what kind of witness are you giving by getting that tattoo? Uh, but in general, I would, I would not tell someone that it was wrong for them to get a tattoo. Jeremy? I think it was interesting that you, even when it was about the, the obscene thing, you still weren't going to make a law of it and say, this is wrong. You, you put it in the form of a question. You said, are you sure this is the best witness to your faith? And it, it's still, you know, you, you, you got the point across. Um, I, I think his answer was sufficient for me. Yeah, I remember getting a question like that when I was a young pastor down in Kentucky that and the reason it came up is because we were doing a lot of festivals with our mission church. And in those festivals, we handed out uh, temporary tattoos for the little kids. And there were crosses and so forth. And this couple said, oh, we shouldn't have tattoos. It's wrong. It's in the Bible. And, and, and even if these kids have a tattoo and they put the cross on, when they hand, hold their hand in a certain way, it's an upside-down cross, and therefore it's satanic. And I said, oh, my goodness. Uh, but it was the same answer that Nathan gave. And that was the same answer that he and I gave to one of our older members the other day, that it, it was bothering her her conscience and that uh, she was just losing her eyebrows. And so she wanted to see if it was okay to have tat her eyebrows tattooed, which 
I didn't know was a thing, but in talking with my wife, she said, oh, yeah, that, a lot of ladies will do that. But uh, giving that same answer is, in Scripture, the tattoos are wrong because that's, again, what the unbelievers, the pagans, were doing. It's the same reason why the Israelites could not eat meat that had blood in it yet. It's the same reason that the Israelites uh, could not eat unclean foods and so forth. It was everything God was doing, all of that, and making those laws to separate his people from the pagan people. And then, but Jesus has come to fulfill those Old Testament laws so that we can eat what would be unclean foods like crab and lobster and so forth, that we can have a, a rare hamburger, a rare steak, that we can have tattoos. I always find it interesting, too, when you have very good, pious Christians that get hung up on some aspects of the Old Testament law code um, and that we don't keep it anymore, and yet don't think through how we also are no longer following the far more important parts of the Old Testament law code, the ceremonies, the Sabbath years, the great day of atonement, the sacrificial system, how none of that's been practiced since 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. And yet people don't go there, which really was the focus of God's Old Testament law. They go to some of the more obscure passages and are worried about not keeping those. I actually just today had a student in class that belongs to uh, Seventh-day Adventist Church and was talking about how they have prohibitions against um, eating certain kinds of meat, uh, fish that don't have scales, um, uh, the pork and so forth. And yeah, that, that that's a great response. Well, if you say we have to worship on the Sabbath and we have to eat the, the Old Testament diet, then uh, really we should rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and uh, I don't think the um, Muslims with their Dome of the Rock are going to go for that. No. Yeah, another question, Jeremy? Oh, uh, I, well, you just caught me while I was arranging my baptism section, so let's go with that. Um, how about I am I don't know, how about would someone who confessed their sins and got saved but didn't get baptized go to heaven or hell? You want to go first, Nathan? I can go first. I had a I had a lengthy argument about this with my religion teacher in high school um, because I argued that, yes, someone who repents and believes and has faith would go to heaven even if they weren't baptized. However, a Christian who has faith, a fruit of that faith is a desire to be baptized. But say there was some, there was some circumstance that made that impossible, um, and I actually never had a good example of one, um, but um, Rod Dreher's book, Live Not by Lies, um, he talks about a Catholic priest who was imprisoned in one of the Russian gulags, and they simply did not have water available for baptism. Um, and so he was sharing the gospel with people in that prison, but it was an example of someone confessed their faith and was taken out to the firing line an hour later where there simply was not time for a baptism to occur um i would say in that instance the bible does not say baptism is necessary for salvation faith is necessary for salvation but baptism and the desire for it is something that a christian wants right when that question comes up in my adult confirmation class on the topic of baptism we look at the bible verse that says uh he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then I ask, does a person need to be baptized to be saved? The student's question. And they read that passage really quickly, and they say, well, yeah. I said, you have to look at that passage very closely. If a person believes and is baptized, they're saved. So it's faith. And then it doesn't say if a person does not baptized, they're, they're not saved. It's if they do not believe, they're not saved. So... What I will often teach then is that infant baptism, we do that so that that child receives the gift of faith. But for an older child or for an adult who has been converted through faith, like you were using in your example of Roger's book, now that, that person will uh, desire the blessings of baptism afterwards. And I guess that's where I would have the question, if you had someone who is confessing faith 
but said they had no desire for baptism, then I would have additional questions on the nature of their faith. Why are you resisting a command from our Savior? I'm going to uh, go a little bit, I don't want to say in the other direction, but I want to word it a little bit more strongly because Jesus does. Uh, He says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the the safest wording based on scripture is to say baptism is necessary. It's just not absolutely necessary. Yeah, and that's our Lutheran confessions say that too, right? Mm-hmm. They say baptism is necessary for salvation. Yeah, I like I like that. I haven't heard that one before about on what Jesus says unless you are born of water and the spirit. Hmm. Yeah. Here's one can one of the students asked, can I listen to Elton John as a Christian? But I, I think it would be anything like that. Uh, you know, I remember an adult asking a question like this, really more challenging me when I was, again, a young pastor down in Kentucky listening to Queen. I didn't know anything about Queen. I didn't know that the lead singer was gay and so forth. So can we listen to music or maybe broaden it out to, you know, watching movies or TV shows that have questionable material in it. I'll just throw in one. Whenever you do one that I might have a similar one to, do you think that the rapper C. Blue is sinning in his music? Well, since Nathan answered that last last one first, why don't you answer this one? Uh, No. (laughs) So you Uh, can't listen to Elton John? No, well, the question, I thought the question was, are you sinning by listening to Elton John? Well, no, it's just, can I listen to Elton John as a Christian? Uh, Yes. Okay, and then why? Um, Well, actually, uh, okay, why? why? Um, Well, he's, in like one song, he's talking about uh, Saturdays, uh, nights all right for fighting. I, I suppose if you are going to hear that and think this is inspirational, I should go out and start a fight on Saturday night, then uh, no, you should not be listening to Elton John. But uh, if you just think that uh, his music is nice, um, I mean, if you're going to say that I am not allowed to enjoy the uh, artistry or craftsmanship of somebody because of their lifestyle, then... Um, you know, you're going to need to you're going to need to start boycotting a lot of things, and uh, yeah, would definitely cancel your Disney Plus subscription. Uh, but that's not the way that we operate under the gospel. Um, it, I'm, I'm trying to think of other examples. I just got caught off guard on Disney Plus now. Uh, but do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand. I, it gets to that idea of keeping your eye to things above, not on earthly things. Um, you know, Paul talks about not letting obscene joking, um, joining in those things. Um, but as Christians, we live in a fallen, a fallen world, and we cannot remove ourselves completely from that, from that fallen world. We are going to see the things of this world. Does that mean we revel in them? No. Does that mean I probably get enjoyment from certain animated cartoons that are out there that probably are not edifying to my faith. Yes, but it's impossible to remove ourselves. And at the same time, we also have to have an awareness of the culture in order to be able to talk to people in the culture they're in. Uh, I think of how Paul utilized some of the Greek poets when he was talking to the um, members of the Areopagus and how he was able to say, even your own poets say this, that we can look at the things of this world and find truth in them that we can use as a bridge to talk to others. All, um, all things are pure to the, to those who have faith. So yeah. What, what's your answer? Oh, I have a couple of things. One is I had actually saved this article from the Babylon Bee just to read the headline because I thought it fit well with this question. It's, it's a really good show. Besides the nudity, homosexuality, violence, swearing, and drug use, says the Christian. Yeah, And so, like you guys are saying, there, we have to use our common sense and say, all right, this may be acceptable for me, but I don't think this is good for my, my teenager. I don't think this is good for my child to watch. I remember 
years ago when Game of Thrones was really popular. And I just heard about it. I don't have HBO, so I rented it. Or I got it from the, the library, and I put it in, and I realized, okay, I need to watch this by myself on my computer. Back then, my computer was old enough that you could put a DVD in. And I had to watch it by myself with the earphones on because of the language, the violence, the nudity, the sexuality, and so forth. And then after a while of watching it, realizing, you know, if I have to do all of that so that my wife and kids aren't walking in and seeing this, maybe this isn't a good thing for me to be watching. And I think it falls under one of those things of knowing yourself, too. Can, you, can I watch this and not be tempted by it, or am I going to watch it? And it's going to lead me into temptation. Is it going to put impure thoughts in my in my head and if that's so then as a christian we need to be discerning and keep away from those things that could be potentially stumbling blocks but just because something's a stumbling block for me does not mean that in you for you it's a stumbling block and it's not right for me to put my limitations onto someone else Hmm. yeah and there i think too uh just last week i finished listening to the odyssey and you know it's ulysses and it's got all these false gods and some people might say, well, you can't listen to that because it's pagan gods and so forth. And yet, when you read what C.S. Lewis says, that all of those stories, myths and so forth, they all have a truth. They all have a, a myth to them pointing to the true myth of Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Spirit. So I was texting one of our Shoreland teachers about this because I had asked two of our members who happen to be English teachers at Shoreland, what are some good novels to read or slash listen to? And The Odyssey was one of them. And I just texted him and said, you know, I'd be really interested to know how you teach this in class, in a classroom like Shoreland. Of, because, yeah, there's going to be things that are obviously false because all of those gods are false. And yet there is going to be some truth in there as well. You have a question, Jeremy? Let me uh, throw you a tough one. Uh, when historically was the... Oh, and by the way, I found out this is uh, from one of your members that wrote this. Ready? All right. When historically was the biblical canon officially decided upon? And were there disagreements about what books to include? Go ahead, Nathan. You, this is fresher. I taught this a long time ago about when the canon was decided. I can talk a little bit more on the disagreements about certain books. Well, I'm going to be here. Hopefully, Professor Cherney never hears this podcast and hears my inaccurate recollection of what he was teaching us. Did you take that class? I did not take the canon class, but he talked about it mm. in our Old Testament isagogics class. Um, the church never decided on the canon. The canon kind of formed together and the church recognized certain books as authoritative. But there wasn't ever a certain point in history when a group of men got together and said, this is the canon of the Old Testament, this is the canon of the New Testament. Um, to use a big word, Scripture has autopisticity. It testifies to itself. And the church has simply recognized the authority of the books we have within what we call the canon. Um, but has there been discussion over which books should and should not be part of that canon? Yes. Um, but I think it's important to make that to make the, the distinction that there wasn't a council that met at a specific date in history and said, these are the books that will be included in the scripture. This is the Bible. And by the time of Jesus already, uh, the Old Testament canon was set in that Jesus talked about Moses and the prophets. Everything is included there. So then... The, there really wasn't so much question then at, by Jesus' time of the Old Testament. But there was in the New Testament, even, you know, Martin Luther had questions about James being included. And you understand why Luther had questions, because James is more about sanctification and doing good works, and he was battling the good works of the Roman Catholicism. And so we just have to understand where that St. Paul and, you know, where we're saved by faith alone and... James, who says, but saving faith is never alone. They're not contradictory. They're, they're complementary. Paul is writing, say, in Ephesians and focusing on justification. James, his focus is then in his epistle on sanctification. 
And then there is always going to be questions about whether Revelation fit in to the canon because it's just so different than the rest of the New Testament canon. But when you read it, and I know, Jeremy, you teach on it, Revelation really isn't any different than the apocalyptic literature of Ezekiel and Daniel from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to those disagreements, uh, what I was told is that the disagreements, there was zero disagreement about what books should be or should not be included in in the canon, uh, in the Bible. The disagreement was about the authorship of those books, that people were not, not everybody was fully persuaded, for instance, that uh, the John who wrote Revelation was the same as the Apostle John or something like that. It, it wasn't about, every. in other words, to put it positively, everybody agreed that these were, meant to be kept in in the bible and uh that's that's interesting to think of that you say there was never any council or or conference of pastors or bishops or anything that decided this it was simply the the churches uh but that's actually not entirely true there is one council that did say you must include the apocrypha and that was the Council of Trent, <laughs> which was long after everybody had already decided, the, or not decided, but uh, recognized that the canon uh, was what it was. And the and Council that, of Trent is not a Lutheran council. That it is a council that also condemns grace alone, salvation by grace alone, and so on. I was going to say, I'm, I'm sure that what the Council of Trent said, you must accept these or you will be condemned, because that seemed to be how they ended everything at that particular council. Yeah, that, that I remember from Latin class freshman year, let them be anathema. Uh, and then with this, too, is people will ask questions like if the Gospel of Thomas comes up. And maybe, you can, maybe you guys can think of other works that have come up in the last few decades uh, that people want to include into the Bible. And they could be. You could find a book like Thomas and so forth. But all you do is you compare it with the rest of Scripture. And you go, oh, all right, this does not fit. It doesn't work with the rest of Scripture. And it's the same thing with, like you said, with the Apocrypha. I don't know if you've read the, read the Apocrypha. I have not. And I think there are, you can learn lessons from reading the Apocrypha, but understanding it is extra biblical. It is not Scripture. Well, this is one of the questions I was asked in Dog last year at our dogmatics class last year at the seminary was... Is, Which is a doctrine class. It's a doctrine class. Is the canon closed? And I said, no. Is it possible that we could find one of Paul's missing letters and compare it and say, okay, yeah, this was written by the Apostle Paul. It matches the other things in Scripture, and we would say that this is on the same level of Scripture. Is that likely? No, it's not likely, and it does seem that maybe some of those other letters were not on the same level as the letters we have from Paul that were preserved, and the church did not feel that those letters were as important to preserve like the ones we do have in the canon. Um, but yeah, I mean, people find works. There's even works in what is it, Jude references. I'm forgetting the, the book, book of Enoch. The book of Enoch, which mm. we would not say is canonical. And even the Jewish people that put the Septuagint together did not recognize that book. There was an acceptance of that book as being something that was inspired by God. Um, and so, as always, we compare what we find to what we have revealed in Scripture. And we know that what we have in Scripture, God's given what, us what we need for salvation, and that's what's important. We have the message of the gospel. We have the message of the law. All right. So, We've got two questions that are pretty similar. So, Nathan, if there was no sin, then how did the devil want to take God's spot? And then also, why did God create Satan if Satan would tempt Adam and Eve into sin? So this is really getting into the hidden knowledge of God and that angels apparently had free will before Satan's fall. Um, and then after his fall... The angels were confirmed, the ones who did not fall with him were confirmed in their holiness and no longer have free will. Um, 
this is just one of those questions. We, we have to take what Scripture says, that Satan was created in a state of sinless perfection, but chose to rebel against God and in so doing plunge the world into sin. Um, why God allowed that to happen, that's falling into the realm of God's hidden knowledge. We don't know. Um, God could have created mankind without the ability to sin. And I've always heard it say, well, God didn't want robots following him. He wanted people that would follow him out of love. And to me, that doesn't feel like a good enough answer. And the answer I'm going to give isn't good enough. This is one of those things that perhaps is not meant for us to know, the side of heaven, but it's to simply trust that God is in control, God knows what he's doing, and this was his plan for salvation for the world. Um, I'm still stuck on angels not having free will. Do you, do you just mean, uh, I, I would say, they're, yeah, what, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure, I would say, let's see, prior to Satan's fall, angels were... So what I well, what I would say is what I teach is that the angels, yeah, that they had a free will; they could sin or not sin. Yeah, they. But were. now they have been since they've been confirmed, confirmed, they've been confirmed in, their in their holiness. holiness. Okay. Yeah, and then then I'll teach, and then the demons, the evil angels, have been confirmed in their unholiness. The angels can only do what's right. I was the trying demons to think can of only the, do what is. I was not trying to right. think of the Latin terminology. <laughs> Are you talking about like posse non picard? Yeah. Able to sin, able not to sin, and then not, not able, able to, not to sin. Yes. Yep. Not able to sin. So what it seems from the biblical account is prior to the fall, the angels were able to sin because some of them did. And now after the fall, the angels that did not rebel were confirmed in their holiness. And we would get that from, uh, it's in Matthew where Jesus talks about these angels see the face of my father all the time would seem to indicate that they are confirmed in their holiness. Oh, uh, okay. That, that, yeah, I, I, okay. Well, there you go. Do you have anything else you want to add to those questions? Uh, n- no, I don't think so. Okay. So, Jeremy, you got a question for us then? Sure. Let's jump into uh, marriage, gender roles, and sexuality. Um, how about... This, there's a bunch that are kind of similar, but how about this? Will people who have gotten an unjust divorce be judged the same as a person who is in a same-sex marriage and both believe in Christ? So one of the things that I think we do a disservice to the Lord is when we point out that, say, like a homosexual sin is worse than a sin of a young man and young woman, living together uh, outside of the bounds of marriage. And so what we need to do as Christians, as pastors, as churches, is to be able to say, uh, this is a sin in God's eyes, this sexual sin of two young men together or two, uh, two young people of the opposite sex. And then when it comes to divorce, is to say, yeah, that is a sin also against the Sixth Commandment, just like uh, the living together or the homosexuality. Those are all sins uh, that Christ also took to the cross. Uh, he took those on the cross and he has forgiven them. And so then once he's forgiven them, now our job is to uh, not keep asking for forgiveness. That's, I just had this conversation yesterday with a, a prospect that had come in. She, she, was, she said, I, I've got a divorce uh, and just a lot of issues. And then I told a story about someone that I know had come in and said, Pastor, I had a, I had an affair a long time ago, and every time I come into church, I ask God to forgive me. And I said, sweetheart, he forgave you the very first time you came in and asked for forgiveness. You don't have to keep asking him for forgiveness. Once he removed that sin, it's gone. It's uh, as... As far as the heavens are above the earth, as far as the east is from the west. Uh, what's the German for this? Deutsch, I never took Deutschlander, but he would have said this, uh, gone without a trace. Spurlos versenkt. There we go. I would, have, I would have pronounced it probably wrong, so that's why I didn't say it. It's gone without a trace. And so for, for the person who has re- uh, received an unscriptural divorce, yeah, that sin is forgiven too. I don't know if I have really anything to add to that other than it's unfortunate that with the homosexual sins, the Christian church has 
probably been rightly labeled as being overzealous in declaring that that is evil, wicked. It's a sin, but it's a sin in God's eyes the same as a heterosexual couple living together outside of marriage. And I think we need to do a better job um, of showing love and not excusing sin, but understanding that this is a sin that people are going to struggle with um, who have that same sex attractiveness. That's something they're going to struggle with their whole lives and that we need to be there to help and support them in that struggle and not quickly condemn them as the most terrible person on earth. I think what is interesting about the wording of this question is that at the end, it, it says, and both believe in Christ. So, in other words, the person who got the unjust divorce and the person uh, in a same-sex marriage. Uh, and I would, I would make some hay with that. If both those people believe in Christ, then there will also be fruits of repentance. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's not going to seem fair because these are slightly different fruits of repentance, but they're different s- scenarios, so they, they're going to be different. Uh, the one who is repentant of his or her unjust divorce, they don't necessarily have to reconcile with their spouse or, uh, you know, get remarried or something like that. Um, they may show their fruit of repentance for the unjust divorce in other ways, whereas the person who is in a same-sex marriage, the, really there's only the fruit of repentance that you're going to resist the your sexual urges or leave the the homosexual lifestyle and uh, that may not seem fair but that god deals with all of us in different ways right and and i appreciate that uh, second part of the answer because i wanted to add that too is that once we have received forgiveness that now we live in sanctification and those would be the what i would say as well and to what nathan was saying too I think too often we as a church and a church body are looked on as what we are against. What we need to be doing a better job of preaching and, and proclaiming is what we're for. And that we're not, that we're not, we are against homosexuality and divorce and so forth. But what we should be saying is we are for keeping the sixth commandment. We are for sexual purity. We are for keeping the marriage bed pure and so forth. And I, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Jeremy put it more elegantly than I did. But that idea that as that person struggles with that same-sex attraction, which unfortunately they may struggle with their entire life, and that is that is a heavy fruit of repentance to bear, to not find fulfillment in part of the way you identify yourself, and that we as pastors need to be there to help and support them with the comfort and love of God and the truths of Scripture as they are carrying that very heavy cross that— many of us don't have to carry in our lives. So here's one, since we talked about free will with the angels, this is, this is a free will question for us. If we have free will, but God knows what's going to happen, then how does God let people not come to faith? The people who don't have the Holy Spirit working in their hearts yet, God says he wants to see everyone in paradise. There were a bunch of parts to that question. So the, uh, I, I'm, I get caught immediately on the free will part, and yeah. my answer is always, yeah, that's why we, we actually, they were, that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Luther wrote a whole book about how our will is enslaved. And, and what's uh, the name of that book? Bond, the Bondage of the Will. All right. Um, so can, can you run through that question again? Yeah, we'll just, let's just answer the first half. If we have free will, but God knows what's going to happen, then how does God let people not come to faith? Okay, so you, the person is wanting to talk about people who do not come to faith. Right. And the fact is that with no passage of Scripture can we say God has ever told us that he does not want anyone, he, he wants all people to be saved, he wants everyone to come to faith, and if they don't come to faith, it is their own doing. So, um, yeah, well, this is where, throughout church history, you've gotten the, the different major branches of um, the Christian faith have tried to answer this question in different ways. Luther answered it that we are in bondage to our sinful nature, and if we come to faith, it is entirely by the power and mercy of God, but if we stay in unbelief, that is because we have rejected God's Holy Spirit, or we've rejected God. Calvin argued that 
God in eternity picked some people to be saved, and he picked other people to go to hell. And that's God's hidden will. And no matter how much you would preach the gospel at somebody that God had picked to be condemned, they would never be saved. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church talks about how we don't have a bound will. We have a completely, or at least mostly free will, um, that we can choose to do some good or some evil, that we can help the Holy Spirit along. And um, Arminius um, argued that we have a completely free will, that we can either decide to believe or decide not to believe. Right, and I think I would answer this very similar to the way you guys did, is pick up on that first part of free will, that we don't have a free will, and and no one does, that uh, we are either slaves to Satan and our sinful nature, or Scripture says we are slaves to Christ. Either way, we're slaves. We're not free. That if we sin, if we don't believe, God says that's on us. If we do believe and we're, we're converted and sanctified, justified, that's all the work of the Holy Spirit. And the way God works, uh, especially God, the Holy Spirit, he works through his means. That's how people are brought to faith, through gospel and word and sacraments. And so I think the, the rest of it is really just building to that of what this person had asked about. God wants everyone to be saved, yes. And God wants everyone to be saved, so he doesn't want them to say no to him. And our job then, especially the three of us here as pastors, is to use the means of grace so that they can come to faith. I think it, I get this a lot from students where they, they say, well, we have free will, and I immediately try to shoot that down. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for that confusion is because it's true in outward, external things that we have a free will, and, and they that's what they see. Yeah. They see that... Oh, I get to choose if, uh, you know, I want to buy a new uh, pair of shoes that are red or a new pair of shoes that are white. And that, that truly is a free decision. God doesn't care what color your shoes are. He did not predestine you. Um, even when it comes to things like uh, who you marry, that is, that is a free will decision. God does not determine or destine you to marry somebody. Um, and, and I think there's just confusion that people get where they think, oh, I see all of these earthly decisions that I make, and th- those are my own decisions. So that must also mean spiritual things like coming to faith are my own decision too. Right. So a free will might be if you eat sandwiches or roasted pumpkin seeds for the or rest of Or rancheros. Yes. And I, I think part of where this gets at too is we want to have a nice, neat, logical God. But the problem is our logic is flawed by sin. Our logic is not God's logic. We can't understand the ways that he that he does things, and that's not a satisfactory answer. But there are just some things, especially in salvation, we have to go with what his revealed will tells us. And his revealed world, word tells us that by nature we are born dead in sin, and it is by the Holy Spirit working through the means that we are brought to faith. And that's where we leave it. And if we reject that, that's on us. And if we believe it, that's on God. And that's how Scripture speaks, and we can't go beyond speaking how Scripture does. Mm. You have a question, Jeremy? Sure. Uh, This one, something we were discussing before brought me to letting the category Let Your Light Shine, and uh, this is a pretty good one. How do you show love to people who are very vulgar while still keeping your distance in in the workplace mostly? How do you not let it affect you? Nathan, I'll let you go first because you would have been working in a workplace much more frequently and um, more than I have since I've been in the ministry for the last 27 years. And I don't know about you, Jeremy. I just don't have a whole lot of people that are very vulgar around I, me. I do, yeah, that's actually, you, you have to try hard to find people that are not church related. Yeah. 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 I was just out in the workforce and everybody's vulgar in the workforce. And it is, it does put you in a difficult position sometimes as a Christian living your faith and not talking that way, but being surrounded and also that's how everyone else in your place of employment talks. Um, and so sometimes you find yourself slipping and saying things you shouldn't because you're trying to go along with those people. But also they know that you're trying to live your 
your faith and I had my boss, the, the attitude changed in the area I, I worked in. My boss started going, guys, we're not going to talk like that. Nathan's going to be a pastor. We need to be, we need to be a little bit better. And then I would get a lecture from him every once in a while when I would let my tongue slip and say something inappropriate. He's like, really? That's what you should be saying. And I would stand accused and go, no, you're right. I shouldn't have been talking that way. Um, but again, it's one of those things like you want to be able to, and I don't want to justify sin, but you also want to be approachable to people. You don't want to come off as someone, oh, they're that goody two shoes over there that nobody can talk to that because they think they're better than the rest of us. You still want to have relationships with people so you can build trust, so you can build confidence, so that they feel comfortable coming to you in their times of need and talking to you. And then you have an opportunity to share your faith, to share where you find your hope and comfort and hopefully help them in their time of struggle. Because um, I had the same thing. I had one of my coworkers who eventually came and talked to me and he said, I haven't been at church for a while. This is what happened. How do I get back to, to finding my faith again? And, and I think of when I was uh, down in Kentucky and we would go golfing on Fort Knox. Is back then, that was before 9-11, and Fort Knox was very open, just almost like any other community. It's much different now afterwards. But I could go golfing on Fort Knox with another uh, Army guy, and I would go with Jared every once in a while. He was about my age. And... I remember Jared and I going and golfing with two guys. We just got paired up, and every time we were on, we were together, the four of us on the tee box, they would swear. But we didn't know them. We didn't say anything. Another time when Jared and I were out, he had brought a friend with him, and we were on the last hole, and that last hole was a, a two-tier of, uh, of the green, and he had put it up the hill toward the hole, and it rolled back down. And then so he said something, but it was in German. And then he looked at me, because he knew I was a pastor, and he said, you don't know German, do you? I said, yeah, I do. Well, I didn't hear what he said, nor did I know what he said, but Jared heard the whole uh, conversation, and later on he told me that when he was in the vehicle with his buddy, he asked him, what did you say? And the guy explained to him, he goes, and he said, you don't ever say that around my pastor again. And, and I bring that story up because I think when you have a good relationship with someone, like Jared did with his friend, you can tell them something like that. But if you're in a workforce with a lot of people like you're talking about and you're the only one, then it's a little different. And I think you you let your light shine like the question asked and eventually maybe uh, they'll see your sanctification and change. And we just had this conversation the other day in one of my adult confirmation classes with a young man who works in a workforce just like you're talking about, Nathan. And he wants to be this person. He wants to be the one that changed. And so I asked him one day before class, I said, so how are you doing? He goes, eh, I'm getting better. I'm not perfect. But people are seeing him. And I was really proud of him, too. He came, for, came home from work just as I was walking the door, and he pulled out his lunchbox that he had his Bible in it. Those little things, they see him doing his Bible study during lunch. They see him reading his Bible. They notice that he's not swearing with the proficiency he may have had before, and then all of a sudden, they might change. And, and it's not that we're trying to change their behavior, we're trying to change their heart. I think where this can also be an added struggle for a Christian is I think of a story my father told about a job he had in college where he got pulled aside by one of the other workers and said, your work ethic is ruining this for the rest of us. Because as a Christian, he was doing his duty. He was fulfilling his vocation. But they got paid at a certain rate, and he was working faster than all the other workers, and they started to hate and despise him for it. And so he was torn between, do I fulfill and do what my boss expects of me, or do I antagonize every other person I work with? And I think that can be a very difficult position for a Christian to find themselves in. I said before, it's kind of hard to find a crowd that when you're a pastor, that's not church related. And But I kind of forgot. And actually, there is a member of our congregation, gentlemen, that uh, is in the same um, self-defense class with me. And uh, when, when I go to my self-defense class lessons, there's a lot of blue air flying around in there. And uh, so... Uh, I, I just want her to know that uh, if she hears that, I hear that too. And um, yeah, you don't want to estrange yourself from 
people that that you're in your social circle with. Uh, but there have been there have been times where I I picked out a T-shirt that said "Our Saviors" on it, yeah. or uh, something something related to the youth rally. Um, and, uh, and in fact, it was just this past Sunday that the church I went to, the pastor was talking about wearing uh, clothing that had Christian emblems on it. So yeah, people and people notice those things, and I think eventually. Did you go to that church? I did. I did go to that yeah. church. I was a really good preacher that Sunday. Uh, I got another question here. I want to get better at reading people. What are some ways to read people's emotions better or know if they are being fake or manipulative without getting too close to them? So what's a way of getting to why, know people? Why, why do you want that skill? <laughs> I don't know. That's no, 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 that, no. I, I, that's my, my, part of my answer okay. is, what is the attitude behind wanting that skill? Because the very thing at the end that you just said, what or the person said was, um, without getting too close to them. Um, so that kind of tells me you're wanting to get good at reading people, maybe not for their best interest. Or maybe the way I was reading it is you don't want to get too close because you don't want to get hurt because sure. they are just being fake. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if... Uh, any? Or do you think any of the three of us have a really high emotional IQ? <laughs> well, no, no. And and the thing is, is well, between between the three of us, and this is going to be a question. Obvious, I think that it's obvious it's coming from a young lady. Is uh, because I don't know if guys really focus so much on other guys being fake and so forth and manipulative. Uh, they can be, but that's not something that I think guys are. But you've got all boys. You have two out of three children boys. I think this is more something that with my girls, it's not a question that they've asked because my girls, if there's drama, they just don't want anything to do with it. And I think that's where this young lady's question is coming from is there's drama there. I don't want to be a part of it, but I still want to have friends. How do I, how do I be friends with young ladies who, you know, when they're on their high school and college years, there's just a lot of drama. You know, one good answer would be look at the, take a deep study of the book of Proverbs because Proverbs is a lot about relationships. Hmm. Um, and that, and that's not coming from me as a Bible scholar. That's coming from me as the grandson of a woman who said, the book of Proverbs is about relationships, and her pastor said, yeah, you're right, it is. It's about relationships between, you know, employers and employees, husbands and wives, um, uh, you with the government, and, and there's a lot of little tidbits in there that are like uh, about the look of the eye and the, uh, the uh, man's words are deep waters. You, you can get a lot out of them if you listen to them closely. Um, so that's that would be my my main go-to for emotional intelligence. Okay. You got a question, Jeremy? Uh, somebody inspire me with a topic. Facing struggles. Okay. I'll just grab it random here. What? No, that's a boring one. <laughs> uh, you should read that one and then, then say it's boring. I, no. I did. I, I, I no, did no, I mean, read it out loud, and then oh. the person who re, who oh. hears it says, oh, I'm not giving any more questions to Pastor Why is it? No, I'm no, kidding. Yeah, Don't yeah, do yeah. that. Uh, I, okay, th this, this one kind of opens up a little. I never seem to be given a break. Something troublesome always happens. I've made it clear to God that I haven't always taken these challenges well, but he keeps testing my strength. Why does God keep allowing these things even though he knows how much it compromises my faith and stability? And I would say we, oh, now the Bible verse is escaping me. So go ahead, Nathan, while I think of the exact wording of the Bible verse. Well, I think it's one of those things that this person seems to understand that this is a weakness that they have, and they want to get better at dealing with it, but God gives them the opportunity to get better at dealing with it, and then they're frustrated that those opportunities are coming. Um, it is one of those things, like, this is a weak area of my faith. Help me get better. Well, we're, we're only going to get better under perseverance. I, it, that's what, that's what builds character is living under our crosses, bearing that cross, working through it and not looking to ourselves for the strength to overcome, but 
but casting our cares on Christ and trusting in his strength to overcome. Yeah, so perseverance was the word I was looking for, but I knew that was like in the middle of the Bible verse. You know, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. That, you know, if I was talking to this young person face-to-face with that question, I would use that Bible verse and say, yeah, God's not testing your faith so that it lessens your faith. He is testing your faith to get stronger with your faith. Uh, and he's pushing you to get better, uh, to become stronger in your sanctification. It's like with my daughter Miriam and I were training for a, this uh, 5K next Saturday, Big Bertha, and I, I despise running. But, you know, I texted her and said, oh, I did a 20-mile bike ride, and then I ran two miles. And she said, oh, boy, I better get going. And then she texted me and said, I did two miles, plus I rode, and I did planks and push-ups. So then the next day, I had to do something. And and I hate every moment of, of this stuff. I'd rather be riding my bike, but uh, I, I don't want to embarrass myself at Big Bertha. But the thing is, uh, I would apply it this way to this young student, is to say, all of the, just like physical strength comes because we're physically working out, God is causing, giving you spiritual strength as he is putting these struggles and difficulties in front of you so that your faith does get stronger and not weaker. I think of a, a shut-in I visited regularly in my vicar year who had just a number of health health problems, had lost all the fingers on the one hand earlier in life, then had a double amputation for his legs, and then now later in life was suffering from some sort of autoimmune disease. And he said just, you know, it's just I never get better. It's always something else. And he goes, and I just always look. And he had a picture up on his wall, and it was of Jesus carrying a man. And he said, that's where I put my hope in, that God is the one that's carrying me. I don't know why this is happening to me. I trust him, and I let him carry my burden. And that just was something that really struck me as a faith that was so much more profound and made me feel embarrassed of my own faith and trust in God. To see someone who, from a purely human perspective, have every reason to have turned his back on God and instead said, nope, this is for my good. I don't understand why, but I trust that God is carrying me through it. So the passage that you're both referring to is uh, Romans 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, not only this, but we also rejoice confidently in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces patient endurance, and patient endurance produces tested character, and tested character produces hope. Yeah, and with what you were saying too, Nathan, makes me think of that saying, uh, that poem, Footprints in the Sand. Uh, You know, there's four sets of footprints in the sand, and then there's two. Well, why are there two? Did Jesus leave? No, he's carrying me. But I like then adding, but when Jesus says, uh, where there's two footprints and you see those long marks on the other side of my footprints. That's where I was pulling you while you were dragging, you know, clawing at the sand. Because that's sometimes the way it is, too, that we, with our sinful nature, we don't always act very sanctified, and we don't always want to go where Jesus wants to be taking us. Do you so, want to finish up with one more question, Oh, Jeremy? no, if we're going to finish, then I need it needs to be better than that. Uh, <laughs> Oh, well, while you're looking for one, I'll throw this one at you, Nathan. What does the Bible say about guys having long hair? I know what it says about people who make fun of those of us who have no hair. <laughs> I think it had something to do with bears. Yes. Um, again, that's one of those things. There, there really isn't a scriptural statement on hair one way or the other that's more one of those it's it's a cultural thing um and a vanity and a vanity thing too paul kind of talks about that um more in regards to women but is it, it are we having long hair short hair crazy hairstyles are we doing that for personal vanity so that others will notice us or are we just doing it because you know, that's the trendy haircut. That's how guys wear their hair now. You think in the 50s, every the buzz cut, the military-style haircut, that was the cool thing to have. Um, some of us just have been blessed by the Lord to not have to worry about these things because our <laughs> hair has been removed from us as a gift from God. So You make it easier on God when he says he knows how many hairs you have in your head. Yeah, there's not a lot. <laughs> yeah, and you know what I t- tell the young men in our congregation is— I, 
I, I'm fine, and I think God's fine with having long hair, but I am not fine if you put that long hair into a man bun. I will come along and cut that off. And then the other day I saw that one of our youths didn't have his hair in a, in a man bun. He had it in pigtails. And I, and I said to him, that's actually worse than a man bun. And then he said, oh, a man bun's okay. I said, no, I will still cut your hair off if it's in a man bun. But uh, don't do the pigtails again, please. All right, you got one last no, one to finish no, up? No comment. No comment <laughs> on any of the above. Uh, What's your big I, I, question? This, I was, this was the one I was going to throw away, but I, actually I think I will ask it. Since Jesus was 100% human, would he, have, would, he, uh, would he have to believe in himself to go to heaven? Go ahead, Nathan. I, it, maybe it should be in the past tense. Did he have to believe in himself to go to heaven? This is just such a hard question to answer because you're really getting into the you know communication of attributes, dual nature. I mean, Jesus was fully human and fully God at the same time. I don't know if there's a way you can you can't separate the human from the divine in Christ because then you're getting into all sorts of murky theological water. So you can't talk about the human nature believing in the divine nature because he still is one person with those two natures. And that's kind of like asking, does God have to believe in himself in order to be God? Mm. I think it's kind of where the question is is getting at. I, I understand what it's asking. It's a struggle with the two natures of Christ. Mm. But to me, I'm, I'm uncomfortable that's making a separation between the two natures where there should not be one. I think I, I'm okay with saying yes, um, he did need to. Um, there was never any doubt that doubt that he was going to go to heaven when he died. Um, but it, I think maybe the distinction is faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And uh, Jesus's human nature, I guess you could say, yeah, his human nature did not see um, right in front of his face the outcome of his sufferings. But the fact remains, he knew who he was, and he was persuaded correctly that he was the Messiah, um, and uh, he, he, uh, he had full confidence of that. If you think of faith as confidence, if you think of faith as being persuaded or being convinced, um, then he, he, he was very aware of who and what he was and what importance that was for humankind. Um, I guess, so, yeah. along with that, was Christ saved because of his faith or was Christ saved because he kept the law perfectly? The, the first commandment would be part of having faith. Would he, So part of, they go together. Okay, yeah. The, you can't keep the law without having faith. And this is right. This is where I was kind of getting at because Christ is such a unique mm-hmm. individual that it's it's difficult to answer a question about because he was not saved in the same way that we are saved because he's true God and made full atonement for us. Yeah, and and I would add to. I guess I would have taken it in a way of believing in himself, but just the whole fact of that he believed in God the Father because you know just think of how often he goes off to pray. And just and I, and I would phrase it this way: Is here you have the second person of the Trinity praying to the first person of the Trinity, and just again, just focusing on like you were saying, Nathan, of we got to be careful we don't separate the two natures of Christ the same way we don't want to separate the three persons of the Trinity. Yes, mm-hmm. and just it is that mystery of well, the mystery of attributes like you said with Christ, but just that mystery of the Trinity, of uh, you know that Christ. The Son of God, he knew his his role, and his role from infancy through 33 and a half years on earth, from the crib uh, to the cross, you know, he did believe uh, in his Father, as, his, as well, and believed in who he was and what he had come to do. 
these are just those areas of theology. I always think of one of my MLC professors that told us, gentlemen, if you think you get the Trinity figured out or you think you have the two natures of Christ figured out, stop. You've probably just created a new heresy <laughs> or rehashed an old one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it just Christ is such such a mystery um, with the two natures, and then you throw in the nature of the, the Trinity in with that. It's just something that's so profound and mysterious and amazing all at the same time that we just look at God in humble awe and amazement that he fulfilled his plan of salvation in such a unique way. All right. So we'll wrap it up here. We thank our teens and our college students for giving us these questions because we have a lot of them. I still have half a page, and Jeremy has a table full of questions from his students. So uh, hopefully once a month we're going to be doing these kinds of special thirsty episodes, and we really encourage you to share these with your high schoolers and college students as well, and then uh, share these uh, with other adults uh, if you're an adult listening to this because uh, I think what we were talking about wasn't just answering questions that teens and young adults would be asking. I think these are questions that a lot of us ask, well, I should say a lot of us have, but we're often afraid to ask in a Bible study or one-on-one with the pastor. And oftentimes our young people, they're not so nervous about asking, which is fantastic. And so hopefully you learn something and hopefully you listen to once a month episodes, we get Jeremy to come in as our guest host as well. So this has been Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer and Pastor Jeremy Leitonen from Water of Life. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life.